You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this Toronto Centre podcast. I'm Chunhui Ng, Program Director. Toronto Centre has just released a TC note on risk-based supervision of retail conduct. To talk us through the main messages of this note, I am very pleased to have with me today the author, Karen Batchel. Welcome, Karen. Hi, Chunhui. Thank you. And Karen is Toronto Centre's Program Leader, and former Chief Executive Officer with the Isle of Man Financial Services Authority. She has over 35 years of financial services regulatory experience and has held senior roles with the Canada Deposit Insurance Corporation and the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, or OSFI. Karen, perhaps we can start with some definitions first for our listeners. What is retail conduct and why do supervisors need to care about retail conduct issues? Thank you, Chen Wei. A real pleasure to join you today. Just maybe starting off in terms of retail uh, misconduct and you know definitions. It's all about you know anything that causes adverse or harm to a consumer, and it's really about consumer detriment. And then flipping it around, it's about ensuring you know better consumer outcomes, good consumer outcomes. And why it's important, I think this is a really key element of the note, it's why it's important is that it's all about ensuring that consumers are treated fairly. There's been a lot of focus, as the note points out, on prudential supervision and extremely important as well. But conduct supervision, everyday financial firms, be it banks, security firms, insurance companies, pension funds, have some touch point to a consumer. And how do we ensure as financial service regulators that those outcomes are good, they're fair, there's a level of transparency in how information is provided, you know, consumers are getting what they need and meets the needs and their interests. So this is why it's such an important area for supervisors to explore. And we get a lot of questions in our Toronto Centre programs about conduct supervision. So hopefully the note will close a bit of the gaps that may exist in the, um, you know, in some of the work that's been done to date. Could you give us an example you encountered in your career as a financial supervisor where there was retail misconduct and what were the consequences? Yes, sadly, I have a few examples from my career and I think I'll, maybe I'll provide a couple of examples. First of all, I've seen cases where consumers have been sold investment products, which for a couple of reasons were not at all suitable. And one of the things that we observed in looking at sort of the consumer, you know, the conduct risk was the level of disclosure you know was the product clearly explained did they understand the risks associated with this kind of investment did they understand the duration the life of this investment product so in other words you know you had to be in for the long haul to realize potentially any gain on this product and i think that was a really good example because it was really um, held out as being a very innovative product and people wanted to jump on this bandwagon but at the end of the day 
you know, this was a level of sort of was this suitable and was the information really clear and did they understand the risks? And this extended actually, in fact, to the board. Did the board really understand the risks of this product as well? So it's not just often the consumer, but the actual financial firm itself in terms of understanding the kinds of risks that are associated with certain kinds of investment products. So at the end of the day, we saw losses, consumer losses and uh, investment losses. And you go back to whether or not they really, really had a good understanding of what they were buying. Many, many years ago, long before um, disclosure requirements were really developed, I worked in the pension area. And one of the things that we observed in terms of pension disclosures was the fact that in terms of defined benefit plans, there wasn't a lot of information on solvency of plans. And from a pension plan member perspective, it was really important to for them to understand the extent to which their plan was funded or not, and what would happen in the event of a windup of a plan. Now, it was more from, again, awareness from the consumer perspective, but again, making sure the disclosures were adequate so they understood the longer-term risks of these vehicles. So I say sadly, I think the paper reflects on the fact that sadly we see many continuing events of misconduct in the financial services industry. And as supervisors, how do we get on top of that? How do we get ahead of that to prevent versus enforce after the fact? Well, thank you, Karen. I think you have touched on many dimensions of retail misconduct. And actually, what drives financial firms and their employees to engage in such misconduct and such harmful practices? There could be many reasons. And I, I've kind of broken it down in my mind in terms of what I worked on the paper in terms of two sort of you know intentional and unintentional misconduct. And in some cases, there may be intent to mislead. So where a product, for example, is being brought to the market um, and perhaps, you know, to the, you know, there, there's an information asymmetry with the in financial firm. They know more about the risks, but in the interest of promoting the product and in the interest of profitability, they choose to obfuscate some of those risks in the kinds of disclosures. And we end up with some form of mis-selling event down the road. So intentional. Uh, unintentional may be simply the fact that the, the work done by the financial firm wasn't sufficient. So did they do a suitability assessment for the consumers? Was this the right product for that target market? You know, did they do sufficient training of their sales staff to ensure the sales staff could impart to the consumer the kinds of risks and opportunities that were provided by this product? You know, was the information disclosed truly sufficient? Did they think about all the dimensions of the risk and the possible what-if scenarios under different performance uh, measures? So there are many things that drive misconduct in firms. And I think about, you know, we start from the very top in terms of when products are developed, have they thought about their target market? Who it's intended for, who it's not intended for? Have that, so your suitability assessment, when they think about the compensation regimes they've structured, are they incenting the right behavior for those people who represent them, the financial advisors and indeed the salespeople? Have they thought about conflicts of interest in the process? Because often there may be a conflict of interest embedded in the relationship between someone who's selling a product and how they're being compensated. And how is that reflected in the practices of the firm? And have they thought about a big one, which we often forget, is vulnerabilities, because not all target markets are the same. 
So you may think about a geographical region where a product seems to be a really good opportunity for consumers, but within that geographical region, there are various subsets of consumers. And in some cases, the product may not be suitable at all, you know, given demographics, um, you know, level of financial literacy, socioeconomic issues, and again, that target market and how that assessment is made. So there are many different ways of considering and why we see misconduct arise in financial firms. Well, the practices that you have described, whether intentional or unintentional due to lack of care, they certainly bring harm and losses to consumers. And as such, financial regulators have put in place requirements to prevent such harm. In your view, what do you think are the key elements of a consumer protection regime or framework? A couple of things to think about, I think, in terms of a consumer protection regime. Um, in many cases, you know, starting at the very top, thinking about the statutory objectives or the legal framework of the supervisor, do they have the mandate to protect consumers? And often a lot of the requirements will be set out in some form of statute or regulation. So you may see that jurisdictions have rules around the kinds of disclosure. So not only the fact that there must be disclosure to consumers, but actually the kinds of disclosures, the kinds of key information that's required in these disclosures, the timing of the disclosures, be it at the point of sale or post facto on an ongoing basis, even the kinds of font. It's quite interesting. Some jurisdictions get quite prescriptive in terms of the size of the disclosure. So again, it's easily read and understood, clean language, clear language. So a lot around disclosure regimes. You'll often see requirements and jurisdictions around recourse and remediation for consumers. Do consumers have ready and easy access to some form of complaint process? And why are complaints important? I think for a couple of reasons. One, it should provide the firm, if properly used, very important insight into product performance. You know, is that product performing as was expected, as was held out to the consumer? You know, are there some weaknesses in the product, be it the sales process, be it the ongoing um, information disclosures, that should be remedied um, by the actual financial firm itself. And as well, consumers need to have some sort of recourse to voice their concerns. You know, how can you ensure better consumer outcomes if you don't understand how the consumer is feeling, either during the sales process or after on a post-performance basis? So again, having some form of remediation or recourse for consumers is often part of the sort of legislative framework for many jurisdictions. The other piece as well is, is interesting is in terms of dealing with third parties. So a lot of firms, as we know, have outsourced certain aspects of their sales process. You know, the days of having in-house sales forces for many types of financial firms is long past. So they will outsource this to, to experts in the field of sales. But again, you need to have requirements around how those relationships are managed. And I mentioned the paper for supervisors. It's not necessarily a higher inherent conduct risk when you have outsourced this, but something to think about. So again, there may be requirements set out in jurisdictions around the terms of business for those uh, financial intermediaries, you know, how they sell the product, the kinds of things that they should be doing, their compensation, how they should be revealing their compensation, what if scenarios. So again, that may be legislate as well or being some form of statute or guidance. I think, Shunwei, the other piece that should be touched upon is that principles base. So, you know, this is about rules and compliance. And, you know, in a 
risk-based system, there'll always be a level of rules or compliance. We, you know, we can't get away from that. And that's going to be very important for supervisors to make sure that indeed the firms are complying with this expectation set out in their legislative framework. But as well, many jurisdictions have chosen to do, to publish principles around, you know, codes of conduct and good consumer outcomes, what it looks like. And these principles will talk about things around fairness in their interactions with firms, the transparency of information, you know, making sure that needs and interests of consumers are met. So again, a bit higher level principles. And as always, these principles are a bit harder to interpret for firms and in fact, supervisors. So what looks like a good consumer outcome? What looks like meeting the needs and interests of consumers? So those codes of conduct and, you know, um, sort of more principles-based good consumer outcomes are incredibly important for supervisors to also consider in the course of their work. Yes, I wanted to ask you actually about what you mentioned about principles. Um, I found it very interesting that in your introduction to this TC note, you wrote that historically, and I quote here, historically, the focus of many conduct supervisors has been primarily on the application of rules and post-event remediation and enforcement. And what you mentioned about principles, that is uh, integral, I think, to a risk-based approach. Which particular principles do you think would be uh, helpful in uh, retail conduct supervision, do you think? Yeah, no, absolutely, uh, Chen Wei. And just a really interesting point of clarification, because I'm always in, in the development of these notes, we're always supported by others in the Toronto Centre. So we have some good discussions and debates. And and one of the things that one of the other program leaders drove home for me was the fact that it's applicable and not adaptable. The principles are equally as applicable. There's no need to massage them a different way. They're very applicable to conduct. And, and maybe I'll just focus on a couple of them. Um, when I'm thinking about it, and I, I and absolutely, when you look at the history of conduct supervision, it had been on post facto remediation and enforcement, and those are important tools for supervisors, absolutely. But the point of risk-based supervision is early identification of risk. So, what are the kinds of tools we have available to us to identify risk early? And I think that one of the things I think often about is that whole idea of you know risk-based supervision being dynamic and forward-looking. So when you're looking at sort of products or services provided by firms and thinking about conduct risk, what does it tell you about future risks? Not just what happened in the past, but as this product is sold and matures, what are the kinds of conduct risks? What level of conduct risk might it entail? So again, always looking forward, you're trying to anticipate what might be some future risks as a product evolves. So very important. You know, similar, equally applicable is the fact that you have to have an assessment model and you have to have a way of prioritizing those risks. So through the assessment model of, you know, rating of inherent risk and of the, the effectiveness of governance and controls, you arrive at a net risk. And it tells you a bit about what are the higher priority conduct risks and activities you have to consider. So extremely important. Same thing, you know, prudential supervisors and conduct supervisors are resource constrained alike. So they have to have a methodology to work through the highest priority risks and make that assessment and focus those supervisor resources. Absolutely, in terms of having a risk-based approach, it really, the principles and the approach supports effective supervision. And what does that mean? It means good decision-making, appropriate allocation of resources, focusing on the highest risk 
making sure you can meet your supervisory objectives. And again, having that methodology that's set out for risk-based supervision provides an avenue, an approach for supervisors. So not just simply looking at compliance, but how effective is the regime that uh, governs conduct within a firm? Absolutely. So really, you know, all the things about key understanding of inherent risk, governance and controls, effectiveness, you know, and risk ratings are equally as applicable for conduct supervisors as they are for prudential supervisors. Yes, I think the methodology that underlies the risk-based assessment would really be key. And I'm wondering whether you could walk us through how a supervisor could go about assessing inherent conduct risk, specifically retail conduct risk in a financial firm. What would be the steps they would go through? What are the considerations? Could you walk us through that? So happy to walk you through a sort of a, an approach. And I think, you know, starting back to the key principles of risk-based supervision, it's having that methodology to take you through the assessment. And the starting point for all sort of risk-based supervision is understanding the activities of the firm, the kinds of products they're providing, the kinds of services they're offering, and really understanding sort of the characteristics of those products, because that will help you to then understand and identify the key inherent risk drivers, the conduct risk drivers for that particular product. And it's really through understanding the product and then looking at the inherent risks, you'll be able to make an assessment of what are the most important risks. So thinking about a complex product, you know, it is likely through that complex product will throw up higher inherent risk. And why is that? Because the requirements for information will probably be to a higher standard. It's more complex. You'll probably need more specialized people selling that product because of the complexity and therefore it'll likely throw up a higher level of, of inherent risk. So you're walking through your matrices and in the paper, we provide a couple of examples of matrices. So you're walking through your matrices, understanding your product, trying to identify those drivers of inherent conduct risk. So be it suitability, vulnerable clients, be it through the, the um, other inherent risks associated with that particular product, and then doing a really good scrub of what's the likelihood of that emerging. And finally, of course, you would consider, you know, the governance and controls, the extent to which the governance controls are not only in place, but are they effective, you know, given the level of inherent risk that sits within that product. So it, it really is a process of assessment and rating. And, it, and you go back to your first principles for risk-based supervision, and I think it will take you a long way in doing your conduct supervision. Well, Karen, thank you very much for walking us through uh, the process. And I'm wondering whether we can talk a little bit more about one particular aspect of it. So having assessed the inherent retail conduct risk, um, the risk-based approach really emphasizes the role of good governance and risk management in managing these risks. So I'm wondering, uh, could you talk us through an example specifically in regards to assessing quality of governance? How can a supervisor assess the quality of governance? And where governance is lacking, what remediation measures might be required by the supervisor? Thanks, Chen-Wei. And going back to the example of a complex product, you know, when you have complexity in a product, it's a bit more difficult for a consumer to understand, you'll really have a higher expectation for the kinds of controls and governance. And it's going to have a higher standard in terms of those types of controls. So for example, in a complex product, you would hope to see in terms of controls, a really rigorous, product governance 
process. So the approval at the point of approval, product approval process, and indeed the ongoing monitoring of the performance of that product. You would also expect to see a fair level of expertise and challenge by the board in terms of governance. So the extent to which you're introducing a more complex product, the simple question is, does the board understand it? Are they asking for the right metrics in terms of understanding that post-performance of that product? Do they have a rigorous process within the control functions and risk management to provide metrics to the board in terms of the kinds of post-sales surveys, commentary, complaints from consumers to understand whether or not that product is performing as was promised and expected? So depending upon the complexity of the product or service, that will drive the kinds of control expectations and governance. And one of the things that I think is, you know, I wouldn't mind touching on in governance is the fact that, you know, there's one thing in terms of compliance and having good controls and reports are going to the board. What is that culture in the firm? And when you ask the question about remediation, one of the things that often comes up is, you know, what happens when something goes wrong? Who's blamed and how is that dealt with? And we're looking at compensation models. Sometimes, you know, the, the best remediation is clawback. You know, people get compensated for sales of certain products. That product does not perform as a result of some form of misconduct. Is that compensation clawed back? How is that individual's performance dealt with by management? Is there some sort of management performance management that is tied into poor consumer outcomes, but equally into good consumer outcomes? Because again, you want to reward the right behavior for the right consumer outcomes. So remediation in terms of Uh, misconduct can come in all forms of things in terms of performance recourse, compensation recourse, and of course, the classic supervision intervention. And the paper does not touch on this topic, but again, the principles that have been set out in earlier work on intervention apply here equally. You know, making sure that firms devote their attention to remediating. So it may be that at the end of the day, that product is not appropriate. There is something fundamentally wrong with that product. It's been sold to the wrong target market. The disclosure is inadequate. And again, similar to any other type of supervisory observation, what remediation is expected of that firm to correct the problem. So governance is incredibly important. And the risk culture in a firm, you know, how does the firm deal with poor conduct performance in its staff? And that is fundamental because if that culture is not correct in the firm, then ultimately there's detriment, there's potential future detriment to consumers because they just don't care. Well, thank you, Karen. I I think uh, governance is probably a good place to wrap up this podcast. It really comes down to the tone from the top. And what I heard from what you said is really to make sure that that board pack or that senior management pack contains the metrics that is needed to really keep an eye on uh, retail conduct risk, how, how that's done. Uh, on the ground and also there's the very important comments that you made about culture and also um, I think probably what's comforting to supervisors is to know that they actually have a wide range of remediation measures and uh, with the risk-based approach you know they have another additional tool um, or lens uh, which is forward-looking and dynamic so thank you very much for this uh, note I think it adds a lot to the conversation on uh, supervision of retail conduct. I, I'm wondering, any closing thoughts for our listeners, Karen? 
Thank you, Chen Wei. There's always a lot to say in this topic. And I have to say the one thing I found really interesting in developing the topic was there's a lot of good work out there and a lot of good questions about conduct supervision. And what really sort of, I think I found heartening was the fact that there's a lot of focus by supervisors. And so more and more, when you look at sort of jurisdictional websites, you see more and more around a focus on consumers. And when you think about it, at the end of the day, Chen Wei, ultimately the end user, the consumer has to be protected. And so supervisors and supervisory authorities globally are thinking more about how do we ensure better consumer outcomes? We can never guard against losses. That's not the job of supervisors indeed. But how do we make sure that at the starting point, consumers' interests and needs are considered as products are brought to the marketplace. So yeah, it was a really enjoyable piece of work that I had the chance to do. So thank you very much for having me on today. And thank you very much, Karen. And to all our listeners, please do check out the TC Note on our website. I'm here today with Karen Batshaw, and you've been listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm.